Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today comes from Paul's letter to the church at Rome, the ninth chapter, verses 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 32. Paul says, So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, Out of Zion will come the Deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all. This is the word of the Lord. As you all know, we're doing our sermon series, Church and State, the Rise of Early Christianity. Each week, we are looking at the early church through the documents that we find in the New Testament. And we are asking this question, what does the church in the first century have to say to us about being the church in the 21st century? century. Last week, we talked about a disagreement that came up between James, Jesus' brother, and Paul over whether or not Gentiles, and what are Gentiles, just so we're all clear? They're non-Jews, right? Whether or not Gentiles, when they become part of Jesus' movement, should first have to convert to Judaism. Now, James, Jesus' brother, do you remember what he said to that? Did he say you'd need to convert? Yes, you do. You need to convert over. He said, Not only do you need to eat kosher, not only do you need to follow the 613 laws of the Torah, but if you're a male, you've got to go get circumcised. So, that was what he put out there. That's what he wanted you to do. But Paul, he had a very different point of view. What did he say? He said, no. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. You're good to go. Now, the conclusion that I came to last week after kind of working through all of this is that if James, Jesus' brother, the guy who knows Jesus arguably better than anyone else, is sitting there and saying that you need to convert to Judaism in order to be part of Jesus' movement, then 
I think that perhaps we have strayed a bit from Jesus' original vision. That if we were being true to what Jesus had told us originally, that we would still be worshiping in the synagogues, and we would still identify as Jewish. But that's not what happened, is it? We are now a totally and completely separate religion. And today I want to talk about how that occurred. I want to start talking about it. It's a long process, but there are many rifts along the way. And today we're going to talk about the first rift that occurs that allows us to split apart. And last week I mentioned the fact that over a period of time there's a shift, a change that takes place in the early church where it goes from being predominantly Jewish to predominantly non-Jewish. And there are two factors at play that allowed this to occur. The two factors are geography and Judaism. I'd like to talk to you about both. Let's start with geography. So, as I mentioned, what you have is, is that following Jesus' resurrection around 30 AD, the disciples, they go back to their villages, they go back to their towns, and they start preaching about Jesus in their synagogues. They start talking to them about it. Now, who is it that the disciples are speaking to? These people are what? They are Jewish, right? Because they're doing this in the Holy Land. The Holy Land located right down there at the bottom of your screen. You can see that. That is the epicenter of Judaism. It's where Judaism is the strongest in the ancient world. So from 30 to 40 AD, the first 10 years of the church's existence, the only people who they're really speaking to are Jews. And it's during this time, between 30 and 40 AD, that James, Peter, John, they decide that they're going to create the mother church down in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly when they did this, but they go down, they set it up, and they get that going. So that's going to be the primary location for the church. Well, then Paul comes along, and Paul says, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to take Jesus' message from the Holy Land out into the rest of the world. And so you can see that little red line right there. Those are the places that he would go to, and he would set up churches there. But what you have to appreciate is that when he would design and set up one of these churches, it's not like he had all the people we have in here today. No, he had maybe a few dozen people, if that. So even though he's setting up all these churches in all these different places, from 40 to 50 AD, which is kind of the whole period in there, he's only adding a little bit here or there to the size of the church. It's not like he's just growing it like crazy, it's just people here or there. So at this point in time, what you have to realize is that from 40 to 50 AD, that Jews still outnumber the Gentiles. They're greater than the number of Gentiles in the church. But then, when we get to 50 to 60 AD, that's where two swings start to take place. So the first swing is that close to the middle 50s, 55, 56, Paul's churches begin to explode with people. And it's not that Jews are coming into his churches, it's that Gentiles start to come into his churches in large numbers. To the point where, by the late 50s, what you find is that the Gentiles, they outnumber the Jews back in the Holy Land. Which leads to the second swing that we're talking about, which is that James, Jesus' brother, his mission back in Jerusalem begins to fail. Now, we don't know why James's mission to the Jews starts to fail. But what we do know is that the Jews, they are no longer receptive to Jesus' message. Now, there's 
some speculation as to why this could happen. Let me give you what I think. I've read different scholars on this. I think there's one good explanation. And it's that the Jews down in Jerusalem, they've become weary of waiting for Jesus to return. So think about it for a second. The church gets started right after 30, right? 30, 31, 32. Now imagine if you're part of the church at that point. You join at that time, right? By the time you're getting to 56, 58, 60, how long has it been that you've been in that church? Close to 30 years, right? That you've been hearing that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. And on top of this, when the average lifespan in the ancient world is 33 years, you have to realize that there's a lot of people dying, coming in, going out. And so eventually people sit there and they say, you know what? What you're saying isn't true. You say he's going to come back. He's not here. We don't believe you anymore. Whereas in Paul's churches, you have all these Gentiles who start to come in. And when they come in in the middle 50s, that whole idea that Jesus is coming back, it's very new to them. They're just hearing it now. So they're very excited about it. So what this tells us is that you can see this big dip that's going on. The Gentiles, they're starting to become the majority. The Jews, they're dropping off. And Paul knows this. He knows what's happening. He knows how badly it's failing. And he mentions it in the scripture we read this morning. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred, according to the flesh. Now, do you know what he's saying right there? He's basically saying, I wish that I was cut off from Jesus so that my own people would believe, so that they could be with God. That's what he's saying. He's willing to forego his relationship because it pains him to great ends that his people have made a decision that they don't want to be receptive to the message. He so badly wants them to be receptive to it. But underneath all of this, there's something else going on. The Gentiles in his churches, they've been asking a question. They've been saying, well, if the Jews don't believe in Jesus, what's going to happen to them when Jesus returns? Because you have to remember, the Jews are Jesus' people, right? Jews are Jesus' people. And according to Paul, you want to be part of Jesus' movement, you have to believe, have faith in Jesus. So if the Jews are rejecting Jesus, does that mean that Jesus will have to reject the Jews? Tough situation. And what you have to appreciate is that this is no small issue for Paul, because remember, Paul thinks Jesus is coming back any day. He could be here at any moment. And so because of this, He's very worried, and he wants them to come in and be part of the church. So, Paul ends up developing this argument because he doesn't want his people to be rejected in Romans. How many people in here have actually read the entire book of Romans? It's very long, but I'm interested to know. You've actually read it through. Okay, that's okay. It's a Presbyterian church. I expect as much. It's all right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm going to fill you in. Okay, so... This is the longest letter in the Bible that Paul has written. And it goes in a lot of different directions. It makes a lot of different topics. It, it deals with a lot of different topics. But if we're going to narrow it down and say, what is he really building towards, which he kind of hits the fulcrum of his argument in chapter 11, it's that when God makes a promise, God is going to keep that promise. And the promise that he's most concerned about is the promise that God makes to Abraham, where God says that I will be your God and you will be my people. 
So from Paul's perspective, that promise is irrevocable. That cannot be taken away. The Jews will always be God's people. On the same page with me so far. Okay, that's the basic argument. But then Paul pivots and does something kind of unexpected. So let's take a look at what he says here. He says, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. All right. Now, you may not understand what he's talking about here, but let me explain it. So essentially, what Paul is saying is that God has intended for the Jews to reject Jesus. That's what God wanted to happen. That the Jews are going to reject Jesus for a period of time so that the Gentiles can become part of the church. And once the full number of Gentiles has come in, who knows how many that is? God has a number, right? When the full number of Gentiles comes in, then the Jews are going to get jealous because all of these Gentiles are in a relationship with God. Then they're going to turn to Jesus. They're going to accept Jesus and they're going to become part of the church, which is how God is going to keep that promise to Abraham. Now, whether or not you agree with it, do you, do you follow me? At least what he's trying to say there? Okay. Now, what I find to be so fascinating about this argument is that Paul is essentially saying that Christians, or that, not Christians, but Gentiles who believe in Jesus are like honorary Jews. That if you're a Gentile, right, if you're non-Jew, you believe in Jesus, that's how you get access to God's blessings to Abraham from the book of Genesis. Now, if this isn't entirely, like, if you're wondering, well, why does that matter? What does that mean? I just want you to, let me put it in a different way for you. So we talked about how James and Paul, these two different guys, right, they have a disagreement. If you want to be part of Jesus' movement, James says you got to convert to Judaism. Paul says what? Believe in Jesus, right? Those are the two guys. Okay. Now, last week, based on the way that I framed that argument, it seems like these guys are really far apart from each other. But based on this, we can actually tell that they're a little more closer than we realize. You see, for both men, you have to realize Judaism is primary. That's the most important thing. But for James, he's saying, look, if you're going to be part of Jesus' movement, just convert. Just like do the thing. Become Jewish, right? But for Paul, he's sitting there saying, no. You just believe in Jesus, and that's how you become Jewish. It is through Jesus that you become part of the Jewish faith. So if Paul were here today, you know what he would say? He'd come in here and say, you guys are not Christians. You are honorary Jews. You are part of the Jewish faith. That's why you believe in Jesus. Jesus is the mechanism that allows you to become part of the Jewish faith. You with me? Okay. Now this leads Paul to say something which is really remarkable. It's one of the most amazing statements that he makes in the entire New Testament. And he says, For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Now whether you realize it or not, this statement in Romans 11.32 is crazy. Because essentially what he's saying right here is that God wants everyone to be saved. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or you're Gentile. God wants to show mercy to everyone. This is the first hint of what we call universalism in the New Testament. And universalism is, universalism is the idea that God saves everyone. And it comes about as a result of Paul's anxiety over his own people being rejected by God. So another way of thinking about this would be like this. 
in the mid-40s, when Paul gets started, he draws a line, and he says, look, you can't be with God unless you're with Jesus. You've got to have faith in Jesus, right? Then he gets to the mid-50s, and in the mid-50s, when all the Jews start leaving Jesus' movement, he says, okay, 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 look. Yes, if you're a Gentile, you need to believe in Jesus. But if you're Jewish, promises stand. You're all good. You can still be part of it. And then he gets to the end of his argument right here, and he says, well, everybody's in. Doesn't matter. Everybody can be part of it. Now, why does he do that? Why does he keep moving the line? Why does he keep making exceptions and including more people? Because isn't that kind of what we all want on some level or another? I mean, don't we all want the people who we love to be with God? I know that when my mom died a little, re- a little while ago, that was the first thought that went through my mind. I thought, I hope she's with God now. And I can't tell you how often I've done funerals. Judy will attest to this, that you sit down with a family. Their loved one has died. Say it's their dad, right? And they'll sit there, and kind of halfway through the conversation, they'll say, you know, yeah, you know, my dad, he didn't believe like I believe. But, you know, he was a good guy. I'm sure he's with God in heaven now. So why do people say that? Why do people always make that comment? Because they've drawn a line in their life, right? They say, this is in and this is out. This is right, this is wrong. But when it's their loved one, and their loved one is on the other side of that line, they want to make an exception for them, don't they? Because the fact is, we all have lines in our life, don't we? We all draw these lines where we say, you do this, you're in, you do that, you're out. And those lines, they're important. They provide us with security. Those are boundaries. Boundaries are good things, by the way. You know, to have a boundary in your life, you need to keep certain people out. And there's other people that you need to keep in because that provides us with a certain level of comfort, right? The people inside your circle, what do they do? They think like you. They are people who behave like you. They're people who you can trust. So it's good to have these boundaries. But what I find to be so fascinating is that you know where the hardest boundaries are in people's lives? It's with God and religion. Like, you talk about the thickest, most immovable lines in our lives. It's in our understanding of God and religion. And it's because with religion, it's all about us and them. Who's in, who's out. So I ask you the question, where is your line? Where do you draw the line of who God is going to let in and who God is going to keep out? Where do you draw the line of who God's going to accept and reject? Remember, Paul drew the line, and he said, you've got to believe in Jesus, otherwise you're out. And then when the Jews all of a sudden start to go away, he's like, oh, wait a second, it's okay. The Jews can still be part of it too, right? And don't we do this all the time? Haven't you heard people? Have you ever heard how much God hates thieves? How much God hates people who steal? But, you know, God doesn't hate my husband. Because my husband, he just made a little mistake in the books with his company. He didn't mean to take all that money. I don't know if you've heard, but God hates drug addicts. God hates people who get high and they're lazy and they sit around all day. But God doesn't hate my brother because everybody gets drunk once in a while, right? I don't know if you heard, but God really hates homosexuals. Leviticus 18.22 says so. But God doesn't hate my daughter because, you know, my daughter, she's not like all those other people who are gay. I don't know if you heard, but God hates adulterers. God hates people who cheat on their spouses. But looking at pornography, that's not cheating, is it? When it comes to the people who we love 
we will draw the line around them in an instant. Because our love forces us, compels us to make exceptions. The people who you love, you don't want them to have two chances. You don't want them to have five chances. You will keep giving them chance after chance after chance to be the best person they can be. And the person who you do that for the most is yourself. So we all understand on some level or another unconditional love, don't we? Because your love is always compelling you to make exceptions for the people who you truly love. And yet, I think some of us struggle with this idea that our God is a God of unconditional love. And I can understand why that would be the case. I mean, here we have Paul. He's saying that when it comes to God's love, there are no lines, no boundaries. They get thrown out the window. And yet, the Christian religion is made up of nothing but lines that say who's in and who's out. So it seems that there's a bit of a disconnect between the Christian religion and the God that we worship who is a God of unconditional love. Would you agree with that? I mean, I think that there is. I see that basically we have the Christian religion and it's not a true reflection of the Christian God. And I think if we want our church to thrive in the 21st century, that needs to change. I can tell you the number one criticism I hear of the church is that the people in the church are hypocritical. They say that they believe in love, but they don't really carry it out, do they? So if we believe our God is a God of unconditional love, do you believe that to be true? I mean, I believe that, and if you come to this church, that's what you're going to hear, so you might as well be on board with that. So, I believe our God is a God of unconditional love. And so we need to be embodying that love, which means we need to erase the lines from our church, which is easy enough to do. You can easily erase lines. The harder thing to do is to live as though those lines do not exist. That's hard. And so what I want to do is I want to end this morning by telling you a story, a morality tale. I heard this story back when I was in high school in Latin class. You may have heard other versions of this story, uh, but it's basically, it's based on the book of Job, so you're going to hear some similarities between that. But I think it's one of the best examples of what it means to actually live your life as though you're living it out with unconditional love, to actually live it that way. So this story, it probably goes back about 500 years to the mid-1500s, the best I can tell. And it centers around an Italian merchant, a man by the name of Giovanni. Now Giovanni, he lives up in the foothills of the Alpine Mountains in Italy. He lives on this palatial estate. And the way that he got to this palatial estate, he's now an old man, but when he was young, he was a merchant who actually would traverse back and forth along the Silk Road. He would go back and forth between Turkey and China. And he actually learned certain dialects of Chinese that allowed him to negotiate for goods that other merchants could not obtain. He became so good and gained such a reputation that Giovanni was once enlisted by the Pope to go out and to broker a contract with Indian and Chinese merchants for the sale of raw Italian marble. And the proceeds from all of this marble would go to rehabilitate St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which had fallen into disrepair at the time, and so they wanted it to be rehabbed. So Giovanni, he goes out, he's able to get the contracts in place, and he receives a handsome sum as a result of doing this. And the Pope is so happy that he comes to him and he says, Giovanni, you've done a great thing for us, and if ever you need a favor, if ever you need a favor, you come to me 
and your wish will be granted. Giovanni, on top of all this, had a wonderful family. He had two beautiful daughters who had married two very well-to-do young men. One husband was the son of a governor, the same governor who had helped Giovanni procure the rights to the marble in the quarry. And the other was the heir to the largest shipping empire in all of Italy. His father had helped Giovanni ship that marble all over the world for a reduced fee. Giovanni was very proud of his family. He'd grown up as a man of very modest means, and now he only associated with the most affluent members of Italian society. So here he is. He's on his beautiful estate. He's retired. He's not doing the merchant thing anymore. And one day, he gets a knock on the door of his estate. And it's his daughters with their husbands, and they have very bad news. That down in Florence and in Rome, plague has broken out. And because so many people have died, the cities have fallen into chaos, people are looting, the town is getting burned, and they were robbed, as many people were. They were robbed of their money, and so they fled north to come to him to seek sanctuary. And he says, of course, of course you can come in. You're my daughters. I would never turn you away. He says, come on inside. You can stay here as long as you need to. But he turns to his servants and he says, let no one else in, for they might bring plague with them, and we too might die. Well, the next week, he gets another knock on the door. This time, it's the families of his daughter's husbands, the governor and the shipping magnate. They come in and they say, look, we've bef the same fate has befallen us. The chaos in the city has been overwhelming. The governor had a bounty on his head because he hadn't dealt with the situation well. He had to flee. And the shipping magnate, all of his ships were either commandeered or burned out at sea. And he lost all of his money in this. And so they came up and they came to him and they said, can we stay with you? We need refuge. And he says, of course, you are the ones who made me into the man who I am today. You, you brought me all of this wealth. So, of course, you're welcome to stay here as long as you need to. He invites them in. But he turns to his servant and he says, if anyone else comes, turn them away because they might bring plague with them and we too might die. The next week, he gets another knock at the door. This time, it's the servants of the families of his daughter's husbands. And at first he says, look, I'm very sorry. I appreciate your situation, but you need to go. You need to leave. We don't have any place for you here. But the governor and the shipping magnate, he comes to them and he says, look, these servants, they're like family to us. If you send them away and they die from plague, we would be devastated. So Giovanni thinks on it and he says, okay, I'll make an exception. You can come in and you can stay. But he turns to his servants and he says, no one else comes in. We don't have any more room. So if anybody else comes, you turn them away. The next week, gets another knock on the door. This time, it's the children of the servants who had come the previous week. And he doesn't even go to see them. He says, no, I'm not going to even deal with you. He tells a servant to go down, and the servant delivers a message. You are not welcome here. You must leave and go find somewhere else. And the servant locks the gate to his estate so that they cannot get in. But the children don't leave. They sit in front of the gate day and night. They wail and they cry and they're starving. They're becoming emaciated. And the servants who are on the other side, this is their children, and they're looking at it and they start to cry. And eventually Giovanni relents. And he says, fine, let them in. And he tells his servants, he says, if anyone else comes, tell them they are welcome here and they will be cared for. 
Days turn into months, turn into years. And Giovanni takes in hundreds of people on his estate. People hear about him and they come and they seek refuge there. And eventually Giovanni has spent his entire fortune caring for these people. And at a certain point, he gets so far into debt that he has to remediate it by selling his home. And so, with tears in his eyes, he sends all of these people away who he's cared for for so long. And with the last little bit of money he has, he gets a messenger and sends this messenger down to the Pope in Rome. The messenger gets down there, and the Pope, of course, at this time is very, very old. He's as old as Giovanni. But he remembers Giovanni. He remembers the promise that he made to him. And he says, well, tell me what's been happening. And the messenger says, well, Giovanni took in all of these refugees from all over Italy. He spent his entire fortune caring for them. And now he has one favor to ask of you. Can you give Giovanni a small dwelling place where he can live and rest his head until he dies? And so the Pope, he looks at the messenger and he thinks for a moment and says, you tell Giovanni this, that because you have sacrificed so much, and because you are willing to make so many exceptions by welcoming in more than just your own family, not only will I give you a dwelling place, but I will restore you and your family to your former glory. For you could have said no, but the love in your heart compelled you to say yes. May the love in our hearts compel us to say yes. And may our church be a reflection of God's unconditional love in the world, erasing the lines that we see before us and always being willing to make an exception. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.